You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Sydney Foreman. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, August 3rd, 2020. Because Black Lives Matter and we want to make a difference. I want to make a difference. Later in the program, Pam Rader of the Brown County Hour interviews participants at the Solidarity Rally in Nashville earlier this summer. That's coming up in today's feature report. This may not be a steady course of opening, opening, opening. It may be we open some, we, we cut back some. Also coming up in the next half hour, a few minutes with the mayor, our weekly segment featuring an interview with Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton about local issues. But first, your local headlines. Here are three things you need to know today. WFHB correspondent Aaron Comforti filed Monday's local news brief. From WFHB, this is the local news brief for Monday, August 3rd. I'm Aaron Comforti. 582 new cases of COVID-19 were reported in Indiana on Sunday, according to the Indiana State Department of Health, which also reported three new deaths. Sunday's numbers show a 40% drop in new cases since Friday. But according to the CDC's website, the drop may be less about an actual drop in cases and more about reduced weekend testing and reporting. Locally, Monroe County saw two new confirmed cases yesterday, while Lawrence County saw one. In-person classes begin in three weeks at the Indiana University campus in Bloomington and Indianapolis. At a virtual question and answer session on Friday, university medical officials presented the school's COVID-19 reopening plans for faculty and staff. Dr. Cole Beeler, Director of Infection Prevention, noted that all of the university's health and safety protocols would not be enough to stop new infections. I don't think anyone is under the illusion that we're going to remain COVID-free. We're going to see cases of COVID. We're going to see spread in the community just like we are in any community. Dr. Aaron Carroll, the university's director of surveillance and mitigation for the COVID pandemic, stressed that the university is attempting to test students before they come to live in the dorms, then retest them, ideally every week or two. Dr. Carroll noted that students who test positive cannot live in the dorms. Anyone who's positive, we will try to, we will tell them they cannot move in. They either have to turn around and go home, or they will have to go into isolation housing and if it's not possible or safe for them to go home. Prominent universities across the U.S. are choosing different reopening tactics. According to the Chronicle of Higher Education and Davidson University's research partnership, Harvard, Swarthmore, and the University of California system have elected to open 100% online. On the other hand, prominent universities such as Yale and Stanford have elected to reopen primarily in person. Meanwhile, the Monroe County schools open up in-person classes on August 12th. This comes after the New York Times reported last week that within hours of the season's first day of in-person classes at a middle school in Hancock County, Indiana, a student tested positive for the novel coronavirus. That's all for your local news brief from WFHB. I'm Aaron Comforti.
Bicentennial Professor of Pediatrics at Indiana University, Aaron Carroll, said all Indiana University students living on campus will be tested for COVID-19 upon arrival during a July 31st COVID-19 press conference. He said off-campus students will also be tested. For everyone living in congregate living on our on-campus settings, we're going to give them an antigen test as they arrive in a central parking lot. If they're infected, we're not letting them move in. Likely, we'd love for them to go back home. If it's not safe for them to go back home or they just landed off a plane, then we're going to actually have to put them into isolation housing. But everyone will be tested before they arrive. Test results will be back 20 minutes later while we give them the rest of their materials on arrival, including a crimson card, masks, a go bag, um, and then we'll let them move on if they're not infected. And we expect the vast majority will not be infected because the prevalence of this isn't that high in the general population. And we should have hopefully weeded out a lot of infections by telling them not to come if they're symptomatic in that pre-arrival testing. For everyone else, all of our Bloomington off-campus students were testing everyone the week before school starts. Uh, we have contracted with Vault, a company out of Rutgers, to do saliva testing. We're going to set up a system where we run all of our students through a gauntlet where we'll collect their saliva, tens of thousands of them, send it off to Rutgers, have them test, get results in 24 to 48 hours. And once again, anyone who's infected, we will ask them to quarantine or isolate. Carol said IU will perform regular surveillance testing. He said local testing sites in Bloomington and Indianapolis will perform up to 10,000 surveillance tests per day on IU faculty and students. The antigen tests are a nasal swab meaning that the tube just basically goes up and gently into the nose, which is not nearly as invasive. The vault tests and later our labs will be doing saliva testing, which is just, you know, basically we just hand them a tube and they can provide a sample themselves and then drop it into a bag for us, which makes it much faster and easier. Diagnostic testing is by nasopharyngeal swab. So anyone who is sent because they have symptoms by the symptomatic testing pathway to an IU health site or to student health will be getting a nasopharyngeal swab. But the surveillance testing, once we get past antigen testing, will be saliva. Carol said IU is hiring a team of 30 to 60 contact tracers and creating quarantine housing areas for students. Also during the meeting, Monroe County Health Department Public Information Officer Kathy Hewitt said on Thursday, July 30th, Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb released two new executive orders. In the first, he renewed the COVID public health emergency until September 22nd or September 2nd. And in the other order, he continued stage 4.5, but back on track Indiana, and that will be continued until August 27th. In that, he extended eviction and foreclosure prohibitations, and he also updated guidance for requirements for K-12 through schools. Hewitt said the OptumServe testing site has performed over 400 tests in one day. However, the site is not permanent. She said the site will be up through August, and the Monroe County Health Department, county and city government, and IU Health Bloomington Hospital are working to create a plan for a new testing site. She also said new gathering size limits are now in effect. So private and non-commercial events, including those in a private residence, are limited to 50 people. And commercial gatherings, such as those at an event space, are limited to 100 people if they're inside and 150 people if they're outside. We do have... a uh, process for people who want to file an exemption request. So this application is now can be found on the Monroe County government website. 
So people who want to fill out the applications need to have them submitted no later than 14 days before the event. And approval of the exemptions will be based on the purpose of the event, the need for the exemption, the prevention strategies that are planned, the current evidence of local COVID transmission, and the local hospital capacity. And because the review process involves this analysis of current COVID conditions, the plan is that applications will be approved no further than one month before the requested event. Hewitt said a health order compliance complaint form can be found on the Monroe County website. Regional Director of Alignment and Integration for Indiana University Health, Marianne Valenta, said the Bloomington Hospital is seeing a surge. She said semi-private rooms restrict bed availability. As we cannot put patients who are either COVID positive or pending testing results, therefore symptomatic, in the same room. This last week, we did uh, reinstate our daily incident command structure to help deal with these operational issues. We meet multiple times a day to ensure that we are closely monitoring available beds and the demand for services. Along with our incident command structure, we have surge plans in place that will guide our decisions as a region around dialing down on elective procedures. You may recall in the past, we totally shut down elective procedures. We are looking at those on a case-by-case basis, a day-by-day basis, and in some instances, an hour-by-hour basis to ensure that we have additional bed capacity for everybody who needs it. Valenta said IU Health Bloomington does not have COVID-19 designated rooms. She said some patients have been transferred to other hospitals. She said the Bloomington Hospital is well-equipped with personal protective equipment. On last week's broadcast of Bring It On, hosts Roberta Radovich and Cornelius Wright spent the hour with Charlie Nelms, Vice President Emeritus of Indiana University, and George Middleton, founder of the Black Institute and member of the Indianapolis Black Chamber of Commerce. Here is an excerpt from that conversation. Charlie, you mentioned children. As has happened in the mid-20th century civil rights movement that we're all mostly familiar with, and in other movements across the globe, it's usually young people who are finding a disconnect between their ideals and the reality of the situation they find themselves in. So what's the role of young people in carrying forward the mantle of uh, racial equality in the United States? Well, I think it's, uh, it's very important, but we have to work at this issue across generations. Uh, just last week, I guess it was, we lost uh, at least three giants of the civil rights movement. And uh, take, for example, when Congressman uh, John Lewis joined the movement, he was, uh, he was a very young man. Uh, and he learned uh, immensely from uh, the C.T. Vivians of the world, Abernathy, King, Son, and so forth. And so I think that while we are dependent upon the young generation, younger generation, it is important for them to understand the history, the culture, and the traditions of the movement. Okay. And as I said at the uh, at the peaceful protest march earlier this summer, is that. We mustn't, and these young people and older people, mustn't confuse the march with the movement. Uh, And so understanding the history, the culture, and the traditions, I I think is just so uh, important. And failure to understand those uh, dimensions, I think will lead to burnout before people, young people even get out of the gate. 
uh, because what we, we live in this society now where people want action right now. Can't wait, want it right now. And if I can't have it right now, then there's something wrong with it. So this whole notion of persistence and passion uh, uh, is just so important. But yes, we're dependent upon the younger generation, but we older people have to teach them uh, this history uh, because some people want to pretend that it uh, it never existed. You brought up a good point. I know that I grew up in Berkeley in the 60s and we've been fighting this fight my whole life. And uh, you mentioned burnout. I, I know a lot of older Americans my age um, we're to the point now that we are seeing some positive change. Uh, we're seeing some things we never thought we'd see as a black president, uh, Confederate uh, uh, monuments coming down. There, there seems to be a turn. But do you think that it's going to last? And what do we need to do to make sure that this lasts? Yeah. So, so I, you know, I can tell you, not much older than, than, than all of you, almost collectively. But uh, nevertheless, so, and I grew up in the Deep South, at the height of segregation. And so I, I have this testimony, firsthand testimony of how much things have really changed. And Cornelius, while you mentioned the monuments coming down, uh, a black president and so on and so forth. And while all of those things are positive, I think one of the things that we have to be careful with as a people and as a, as a country, and that is not to confuse the symbols with the substance. And so while I'm happy to see you know, a black president, having had a black president, I'm happy to see more uh, black people and Latinos and, and LGBTQ and, and different people serving in all capacities at the county level, the state level and the national level. Uh, what we have to do is to make sure that we have the policies and the programs in place that will elevate uh, and move people beyond uh, degradation and uh, um, um, lack of opportunity and that kind of thing. And so what we have to do is not have the symbols of racism and classism uh, be interpreted as somehow uh, an indication of our having overcome. Because one of the things you all will remember when President Obama was elected and Mr. Obama was elected, there are people who said that we're living in a post-racial society. Well, you just look around right now and you tell me if we're living in a post-racial society. The Brown County Hour featured a series of on-the-street interviews at a solidarity rally in Nashville during its August broadcast. Here are excerpts from Pam Raider's report on the Brown County Hour, which airs first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. on WFHB. It wasn't the first or last abuse of an innocent Black person. But the death of George Floyd was a shock heard round the world, unleashing a flood of protests. Thanks to several young people in our community, a solidarity rally made its way to our little burg of Nashville, Indiana on June 20th. These young people, namely Molly Austin, Grace Richardson, Bailey Baker, Jessica George, Jezeree Emberton and Casey Stouffer work closely with town officials and local law enforcement. They wanted to make sure Nashville was seen as a welcoming place. Although the rally turned out to be a peaceful event, rumors and threats posted online beforehand led many to expect otherwise. 
Remember, this was directly after rioting in other cities, including Indianapolis. To protect against that happening, police from Martinsville and the National Guard were also asked to be in attendance. I happened on a group of black-clad, gun-toting guys who, it turned out, were there to protect the speakers and attendees. It was a hot and humid day. We were mass in keeping our distance. Several members of our radio team were there to capture the speeches and the voices in the street. It was great to see my friends stand in solidarity with those calling for change in the face of injustice and to capture the event for our audience. We could not include all the recording for this show, but here are some excerpts. This is Pam Rader for the Brown County Hour. Well, I'm just here to exercise Second Amendment, First Amendment right, keep the peace between everything and... What, you know, watch you all and all that, so. Okay, thank you. Why'd you show up today? Because Black Lives Matter, and we want to make a difference. I want to make a difference. I want people to know that Brown County and Nashville want equal justice uh, for everyone. Minorities should have the rights we've all enjoyed for a long, long time. I just feel like 400 years of, of white privilege is enough, you know, and uh, 400 years as of last year, and now it's time to move on. So I want to see laws change that uh, change the way policing is done. And I want to see laws change that allow more opportunity for minorities. I showed up because I'm so tired of seeing uh, injustice in, in the police force and the band-aids that they're offering now are nothing compared to what needs to be done. I think that it's important for white communities like ours to support in solidarity with the people that are being oppressed. And I especially appreciate that this was put on by young people and I think that's such an encouraging thing to know that they're getting involved. It's a beautiful day and it's a beautiful event for Brown County and our community to show solidarity with Black Lives Matter. Uh, every little bit that we can do as our small community is um, we should be doing. I showed up because I live in a county where we need to address these issues that are being brought forth and to help promote the idea of restorative justice instead of just retributive justice. Not just who's guilty, who to blame, what are the, the rules, not the legislative side, but the heartfelt side, and the side that involves uh, changing ourselves on a cultural and social level. I think that's what will bring about the greatest society changes. Now it's time for A Few Minutes with the Mayor. In today's program, Assistant News Director Sidney Foreman talks to Mayor John Hamilton about reopening schools and the commissioning of two Black Lives Matter murals using Black and Brown Arts Festival funds. We now turn to Sidney Foreman for that interview. Community members posted questions on our social media via Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter 
posing questions to Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton about current issues. Today, on A Few Minutes with the Mayor, John Hamilton answers these questions. Our first question today is coming from Lipshaw, and they are asking, how come we needed to hold up in April due to COVID transmissions, but now that it's worse than ever, we need to get back out there? We're looking at all the data all the time. Monroe County still has pretty good data showing the incidence of the disease, but I do agree that it's it's the right question about trying to calibrate exactly what we do. We are of course, continuing to restrict bars and restaurants in new ways uh, that we didn't with table service uh, only. And uh, we've encouraged outdoor service uh, and we've tightened the gathering sizes again, but we may not be done. Uh, The the question suggests uh, that we need to keep paying attention to what the incidence of the disease is and what direction it's going. And I totally agree with that. As we've said, this may not be a steady course of opening, opening, opening. It may be we open some, we we cut back some as we see the incidences uh, increasing. We've seen some signs of hospitalizations uh, go in the wrong direction. We've seen some signs of the uh, incidents of testing positive uh, go in the wrong direction. Uh, so we're monitoring that literally day by day, uh, particularly with the health department to decide what we need to do. And we may see some more changes. And they're also asking if it makes sense for Monroe County schools to start online, how can it make sense for IU classes to meet in person? Well, those are two different kinds of systems. Um, it's, a, it's a fair question, uh, and I can't presume to answer for each of them. Uh, of course, the school district is looking at a, an online start, uh, and that's a change from what they originally planned. I think they're still hoping to move to in-person classes at some point in some arrangements, uh, but that's going to be driven by the disease uh, experience that we have. Um, IU is doing a very sophisticated hybrid mix, a very careful attempt to try to manage all of this and There's no simple answer to either of those uh, systems, Uh, and I know, I'm confident that both of them are going to be very sensitive to how the disease progresses. Um, The next question that I have is, what resources will be available to MCCSE families of students who won't be able to go into schools but depend on resources through the schools, such as lunches and Wi-Fi and those after-school programs and more? It's a really good question because when schools are not open, when the buildings are not open and the kids not attending, there are some real consequences. It's one of the reasons the question of uh, opening schools is not just about the pure education impact, which itself is important, but other family household impacts like the person asks about food and Wi-Fi and frankly safety, sometimes others. So I know, uh, I don't know all the details, but I know there's extensive work uh, looking at childcare needs, looking at food security needs. I'm proposing to the city council that we launch a small but important uh, broadband access Wi-Fi uh, grant program that will help uh, nonprofits and entities uh, try to make sure we do have digital access. We'll be releasing a digital access survey in the next day or two that shows some of the gaps that we have. So that is a real need. Um, all of those are uh, things that I know both governments and nonprofits are looking at. There is money uh, from the federal government to the CARES Act that can be used for COVID response, uh, like those kinds of things. And and, uh, like we did in the spring, people are mobilizing to uh, identify food, child care, 
safety, uh, other issues, digital access, other issues like that right now. Do you know what groups specifically are doing things like that? Is it like Habitat for Humanity or anyone that people can reach out to? Well, uh, on the child care, I know that the Community Foundation is kind of a center of work on that, uh, organizing the thinking around it. Our Parks Department and others are working, Boys and Girls Club and others are working together and other child care providers. On the food security, um, I think it's MCCSC itself is is coordinating that. Again, some with city, some with Boys and Girls Club and others, I think. Uh, each of these dimensions has uh, kind of different players, but anybody interested in helping or getting questions answered about that, I think the first step would probably be to reach out to the school system uh, to find out what's going on uh, in that area. Are there any plans to heighten restrictions on mass gatherings indoor or outdoors as IU students return to town? The short answer is there's discussion about that. Um, I am trying to encourage further discussion about that. As you know, we've uh, tighter restrictions here than across the state with a size of 50 for indoor uh, private gatherings, a size of 100 or 150 for commercial establishments, all requiring physical distancing and masking and such. But I do think uh, there is discussion about whether that's going to be enough, whether we need to reconsider that. Um, uh, and as we look at the national stories, as we see what can happen with super spreader events. So short answer, yes. And how can inappropriate gatherings be reported? And then who will be called to the scene to enforce the gathering uh, restrictions? Enforcement of, of gatherings, particularly private gatherings or commercial establishment gatherings, it depends on where they are and who they are. The IU police and the Bloomington police have collaborated very closely in uh, in the spring and will continue to do so for dealing with parties or, or private gatherings as needed. Uh, and, and outside the city, I suppose the sheriff uh, may do so. Um, for establishments like a hotel ballroom or a commercial establishment gathering, that can be done uh, through the health department uh, or excise police with alcohol serving at, uh, institutions and such. To report, if you if you see something that you're concerned about, uh, there's now a county-wide hotline that's uh, 812-803-6360 that people can call. Uh, or if you can't remember that or can't get it at hand, you can always call 911. Just indicate you're trying to get a message through to people. Okay. Or you can call the mayor's office. That's always <laughs> that's always something that people can call. That's 349-3406. Given the uh, current environment of calls of police reform, are there any concerns about police serving as a sort of COVID-19 crowd control? Yes, there are concerns. Um, we, we don't expect or ask our police to be generally approaching people uh, out in the open about a mask, uh, if they're wearing one or not. Um, we are concerned to make sure sure uh, that we don't turn this into a, a situation where you can cause confrontations. Um, the mask order uh, is required uh, under state law now and that you wear a mask in a number of circumstances. Basically, anytime you're inside, not in your own home and outside, if you're going to be within six feet of people. But we are not asking the police to approach individuals who don't have a mask outside. They can if they have a natural interaction with folks, of course, and uh, can do so. But we are sensitive to that. If it's a private party that's violating rules or if it's an establishment that is uh, not following rules, uh, the, the law enforcement it can be involved in helping deal with the 
a larger gathering like that. But we're sensitive. Like there have been some instances around the country where those interactions have not gone well, and and um, uh, we're we're sensitive to that. On the other hand, we really want we do want people to wear masks. It's very important that they do so, and and uh, reminding each other of that is is uh, perhaps all of our jobs. The last kind of question I have today is the Bloomington Board of Park Commissioners approved the commissioning of two Black Lives Matter murals using Black and Brown Arts Festival funds last week. What message do you think this is sending to residents and visitors of Bloomington? Well, I'm pleased. Uh, really, the Banneker Center, who uh, part of the Parks Department, and, and then communicating with organizations and members of the community at large, proposed uh, these these street murals. And uh, I think it sends a message that Black Lives Matter. And that's a good message. It's an important message these days. Uh, and it's a message that uh, Bloomington takes these issues seriously. And we want to be an inclusive, uh, welcoming, belonging town uh, and joining statements that, that respond to some of the things we've seen around the country. Uh, there are more steps to be taken with the Public Works Board and perhaps the City Council. Um, but I think using art to make those statements is a very powerful and important thing. Do you think that these murals will inspire local government to take further action in racial justice? Well, I think, speaking for myself, I'm inspired and have been, and, and the last few months have, have encouraged more of us to take action. And I think art, murals like this, can remind us of that. Um, Art can be a powerful motivator and inspirer, and um, making a statement in public like that can help uh, the community as a whole uh, remember and remind us and be a visible spur uh, to take action. I think that's a good thing. Do you have a question for Mayor John Hamilton? Comment that question on this coming week's post for a few minutes with the mayor to have your question answered. For WFHB, I'm Sydney Foreman.